0: It's amazing how quickly, once you sort of lean into or sit in your values, how quickly you can sense when something's off.
1: I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, You can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Eduardo Braniff is an experiential communications leader, not-for-profit supporter, and corporate communications consultant. Eduardo started his career in entertainment working for MTV, While there, he had the distinct pleasure of producing over 30 international adaptations of MTV series. Think Real World, Singled Out, Unplugged, Beavis and Butthead. He founded MTV Books. He published cult classic book titles, such as The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and bestsellers such as Tupac Shakur's Rose from Concrete. For 15 years, Eduardo worked for the UK-based global experiential design agency Imagination. After serving on the board of Yo-Yo Ma's not-for-profit music and education organization, Silk Road, Eduardo assumed the executive directorship. In this capacity, he transitioned the organization from a celebrity-driven one to a mission-driven one, facilitating Mr. Ma's exit from the organization's leadership, expanding the board, and raising over $7.5 million. He remains on the advisory board. Similarly, he led the LA Independent Shakespeare Company's board. He currently is a brand consultant. His company, Sedwell, focuses on naming, brand voice, and brand strategy for small to large scale businesses. Additionally, he supports corporate leaders in their IPO launches, developing their IPO and investor communication assets, as well as personal speech coaching. He has worked with numerous executives on numerous IPOs, including many of the top 10 IPO launches. In and among all of these efforts, Eduardo has also produced movies and become a certified executive coach. Thank you for being here, Eduardo. <laughs> it is such a treat. It is a treat. Uh, Eduardo and I are new friends.
0: Yes, but deep friends already.
1: But have hold like the closest, very close people to us in common. And I want to start at the very beginning. Mm. So we're gonna we're gonna take some twists and turns. But I want to talk about you were born in Mexico. Yes. You know I love Mexico City.
0: We we love Mexico City. Yeah, I was born in Mexico City. My mother was American, my dad was Mexican, so I'm legitimately Tex-Mex. <laughs> and I lived there until I was 17 when I came to the states to go to college, and I love being from Mexico, and until recently, I loved not living in Mexico, but this past little visit was a little tickle of maybe. It's come on home.
1: Pretty special. Yeah. Uh, everyone I talk to that's like, I would say like probably like their 50s, like if I was single and younger, I'd be living in Mexico City. And I'm like, that's the energy I feel it has right yeah. now. Yeah.
0: You know, growing up there, I, I'm i going to say perhaps something controversial for Mexicans is that people didn't really appreciate what they had. Mm. There wasn't a real pride of Mexico. And this last time I was there, was, which was for the Contemporary Art Fair. So, of course, there was a, like a real influx of interesting, cool people, but the most interesting and coolest people were the whole Mexican set. And I, for the first time in my life, felt that Mexico was proud of, Mm. it's always been proud of itself, but in this case it felt proud of like being sort of a bit more of a player.
1: We share something in common, which I learned um, when I read your bio. Oh. We both worked at MTV.
0: Oh my gosh. But you
1: worked there at an exciting time.
0: I worked there at the most exciting of times. It's like when the roller coaster is just hitting the top. Yeah. Because it's about to go down. And I was there when it was Beavis and Butthead, Unplugged, Real World, all of the shows. Singled Out. Singled Out. Yes, Singled Out is very near and dear to my heart. Having Me produced. too.
1: Growing up, watching Singled Out was like the most fun.
0: I mean, first of all, Jenny McCarthy yes. does not get more interesting than that lady, but to see Singled Out as a global phenomenon and to have had a hand in giving Israel Singled Out, and Malaysia Singled mm. Out, and Germany Singled Out, and Belgium mm-hmm. Singled Out was was among the MTV highlights for sure, for sure.
1: I think when, when you work there, I think, I talk about this a lot because my experience there was, um, came in at a time when it was, you know, the brand was built on creating culture. Yeah. And it it devolved into reacting to culture. Yeah. And so when I came on, I came on to like help revamp a smaller channel. And I was so excited because I'm an early adopter and I was promised the stars and the moon. And I got in and it was like, uh, actually nothing that was promised was true because there was this hierarchy and engine of groupthink of sort of managing up versus appreciating differing opinions. And a lot of the stuff that I just realized was like the things they would mandate the priority or tell me what the priority was. Mm -hmm. But if the audience wasn't responding to it, we would just like bypass that and say, well, that's the priority. And you're like, well, if the audience doesn't care, then how is that the priority? And it was this really challenging time for me, because based on like the legacy of what the company was, it was sad to be like, it's really lost sight of its own point.
0: For sure. I mean, you say something very compelling, which is how do how does the creation of culture and business coexist? You know, <laughs> cool is not a business, because yes. the moment it becomes the business, it ceases to be exactly what it set out to be. And MTV, early cable channel, the whole the whole landscape of media is changing. And so they get to be rebel rousers and rule breakers for a very, very, very long time. But then when it became much more competitive when they weren't the only cool kid on the block or on the dial it starts to become a mandate and a priority that's dictated by I don't know an advertiser or a potential merger and acquisition or back in the day like synergizing like yes so it it's almost it's almost cyclical and inevitable that the thing that you once thought was the coolest thing ceases to be because yes. somebody else latches onto it
1: yeah, but it was, it, was, it was hard because I was like, oh, you hired me to do this thing that is helping you be more in touch with an audience base and you're not listening to the audience base. And that really was the big disconnect for me because right. we're talking about business, It's like, well, the business is where the audience is, but Hollywood has this deep resistance towards like audience data before the show is out or like looking at other sort of data vehicles. I mean, I would say they would argue now that they're doing more of that, but I would still argue they're missing huge pieces in the value chain. And so it was just like, it's so interesting because I think you worked there at the time I would have dreamed to Mm -hmm. have worked there.
0: No, it was an amazing time. Like Inevitably, there could not have been a more compelling um, moment, I think, in MTV's history, other than perhaps right at the start. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when they're releasing shows like The Real World, which for better and worse is one of the most important shows on television, Many would say it's the the original of a reality TV show, and others would argue that there was a documentary in the 60s called An American Family that sort of predated it, but as a vehicle of entertainment, no doubt. And to be there for that moment was incredibly compelling, but also animation. And there was this lesser known, but talk about cool, this animation show called, um, first of all, it was an animation, compilation with the name of which I'm immediately forgetting, but then out of it came Aeon Flux, mm. which was the baddest assest of like female superhero characters who, she was totally flawed and totally powerful and totally awesome. And another series called Syphilin Ollie, which was a sock puppet show. And you think like, what other channel of this scale and of this influence at the time could put forward a sock puppet show and have people go yes please. you know um and it was also a really great time for music i mean not that there's ever a bad time but the madonnas the nirvanas the unplugs the george michaels you know the princes these like incredibly iconic performers but of to my mind even more importance like the hip-hop scene which frighteningly enough is now f- this year, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. But you know MTV and hip to- hop and DJ and street like all converged in this magical, almost like Renaissance equivalent mm-hmm. moment of global culture. But I would, say, I would say it was just much more about just US culture. And it was amazing to be there.
1: What was a key learning you took with you?
0: Well, I'll underline that there's a very short window in which business and culture can coexist and each be firing at its fullest potential. Another thing I learned was that, and it's very relevant today, that back then we did so much research and the research department at MTV was like this incredibly compelling group of people because they had their finger on the pulse of what was what. That if you fast forwarded today, like the equivalent would be just this incredible data set of how we behave in media and what we're doing and saying and liking and clicking and all this sort of stuff. But in both instances, it was easy to find the trend or the meme, but to me, the real masterpiece then as today and hopefully in the future is still coming from lived experience, a gut reaction to a moment, something that you see on the street one, two, three times or in the club or wherever that gives you this real flash of inspiration that becomes culture. I don't think that you manufacture culture out of research or out of data ever.
1: I agree. I think there's always a human touch to art. And I think this is, we can't automate art. You can't take away because what the expression of culture and art is, is the expression of soul.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the expression of soul that connects to tribe, which you know, back to the introduction, we're new friends, but through whom we are connected puts us in this very tribal context. Like we could probably very quickly establish shared values um, yes. between us and certainly among Well,
1: we already people. did, but. Yeah,
0: that's, that's for <laughs> but then sure. In our first
1: conversation, I was like, yes, yes, yes. this. Because um, usually I like I, 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 take, I take a, you know, I'm, this, this podcast is very much about people who live fiercely on their values. And that's really mm-hmm. the goal is people that are embodying success, inner and outer in the world. And so that's, for me, such a big filter. And when I met you, it was just so deeply evident right. um, that I was so excited to have you here.
0: Right. And on the subject of values, that is, that is the sort of platform that I think transcends and in some cases, trumps research and and data, like what do you stand for? What are the what are your guardrails or gu- guidelines? And how do you use those to align with either the job that you were offered at MTV? That on the surface there was an alignment, but perhaps at a values level or right. what is valued level, did not sync up.
1: That's exactly right. You know, and it was frankly, a beautiful lesson and experience for me in so many ways to understand how corporate machines work, but also to understand, like, I think I probably talked about it before, but there's this book called The Peter Principle, which I don't know if you're aware of, but it basically says that when you have deep corporate structures, they operate on hierarchy. So you have to sort of follow the rules to be promoted. And when you don't follow the rules, you either get fired or you naturally vibrate out of the hierarchy because you're threatening the structure of the right. place. And a lot of that is groupthink. And if you don't subscribe to the groupthink, you're not a fit. And that's really what I learned was that I was someone who is deeply feminist and was going to college in Manhattan, You know, had grown up, had a very different specific lens on the world. And in the environment that I was at when I started working at MTV, it was clear that I was not of the brand of who was now the staff and it was, we, what, what I sort of took away and this was just my perception was that I felt connected to the original, the original, like values of the company that had lost the way. But a lot of people that had worked there or were working there now, I realized there was, I was like, oh, they grew up and they were fans of it. Mm -hmm. They weren't living the values. They were fans of the values and then they became the whole company. And so there's a big distinction between someone who's pushing the convention of culture and someone who's just a fan of that. Absolutely. Which I thought was really, for me, I was like, that's such an interesting, it was like such a positive experience for me to figure out sort of who I wanted to be as a producer and where I wanted to be and to realize that like, you know, not everything is what it seems.
0: And it's amazing how quickly, once you sort of lean into or sit in your values, how quickly you can sense when something's off. Whether you want to call it a vibe or whether you want to call it or a it-
1: clear, um, Denise, you're not the audience, so uh, we don't really want to hear your opinion.
0: Right. <laughs> I right, was like,
1: right. what? I was like, what if we ask the question just for creative exercise? How do you make me the audience? Not that we have to like obviously having a clear demographic and a niche is great, but it's a creative exercise to expand our thought. And I was just like, okay, I'm, I understand. <laughs> I understand right. what's happening here. Right.
0: And there is no bigger rock to push uphill than misalignment at a values level, period, the end. You know, there are so many companies today or, or groups today that will recognize so quickly if there's a mismatch because the expense, whether financial or cultural or timeline or whatever, is too great to keep somebody who's misaligned in the fold.
1: I felt this when I met you, and I feel it now again. When I met Eduardo, I was like, I wish I had met you when I started my company. Because so many, like exactly right. When there, when there is misalignment, it is pushing the biggest boulder up the hill.
0: And it's, it is, they are such empty calories, wasted energy, and there truly is no harm, no foul. Like, we do not match at a values level. It's not a judgment call on your or my values, period, the end. Is we're just not matched, so let's not try and like rewire this motherboard to work. And as we were discussing the first time we met, that starts to get really cloudy and complicated when you're like, oh, but this person has something that could really sort of move my enterprise forward, whether they're an investor or somebody of influence that can move it along. But it becomes very, very expensive when yes. you are chasing money that is not aligned with, your vision, your values, your presence. And when somebody else's agenda, which will always be at play, but when it is not so apparently at play, it's just static. And that's static that costs a lot of time and energy. That when you're starting something or building something, you need it to be pure and clean energy. Because when it gets shitty, you need that reserve. But if all the way along there's this just like low hum of bad juju, cut it out. The faster you do, the faster the thing moves forward.
1: I think that one of the things I had to unlearn in the process of building my company and fundraising and not succeeding was the idea that work doesn't have to be hard. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I grew up believing, okay, it has to be hard. And so when I faced a lot of resistance with my company, I just blamed it on, well, we're building a mission-based company. There's just like natural resistance to like doing good and doing the right thing. And there is a a very clear difference between healthy resistance and gratuitous resistance. And that was a big thing that I did not understand until much later was that it was the misalignment of values. I was raising money from a system that inherently I did not speak the same language of values, but I thought just logic, I was like, if I speak logic, it'll eventually figure itself out, or I can keep trying, and it just, you know, just didn't. It took a huge toll on me. I mean, it led to my whole, I would say, becoming and my surrender and me being a better person. But I think if I had known some of that stuff day one, or someone had properly explained to me the system I was walking into, I think whether or not I would have listened in the moment, I would have had the seed planted in a different way. That I don't think it would have taken me seven years to say. Okay, I can't continue. Right. right. I might have wisened up earlier. And so I wanna come back to fundraising, but I sure. wanna just go back to MTV for a second and talk about what made you leave and why did you like, what, pivot into something else?
0: There were a couple of reasons for leaving. Um, one was at a lowercase V values sort of misalignment with the person who was my boss at the time. Actually, a, a friend of mine, but in the kind of context of work, it we just didn't didn't align. Um, I became also interested in perhaps a different uh, way of creating culture, and then but lest that sound a little too highfalutin, I I left MTB having started the publishing imprint. So. I created the oxymoron known as MTV Books and we were publishing poetry and nonfiction and fiction titles as well as the much beloved Beavis and Butthead companion <laughs> books and re- <laughs> real world behind the scene yearbooks and stuff like that. But the I was just very much drawn to I guess you could say at the time and certainly now this sort of old school way of creating content and mm-hmm. um, that was definitely not a priority of mtv like right. books you know even then as i still hear now like the depth of the book like the book is as resilient as the cockroach in the nuclear <laughs> holocaust everybody so let's quit killing it okay and people write books and people <laughs> yeah. read them yes. and the great classics etc cetera, etc cetera, speaking of culture but also i just wanted to try something new and you know it's going to sound like a counterpoint to what I just said, but it was a friend of mine was producing an independent movie and I thought, well, why not try this out outside of the machine of mm-hmm. MTV and Hollywood and whatnot, which already I had gotten a sense was like, this is a business that's operating out of fear and charades. Um, so I went and produced this, this movie and ultimately it was, the movie was terrible like it was a terrible movie on the page it was a terrible conceit all of it but the person i was helping the writer director who also knew i thought it was terrible was just a great person mm. and i wanted to sort of us to learn together and that was truly the first decision i made professionally to say i don't mind what you're doing but i really want to do it with you
1: my, my friend, so I ran this nightclub in my early 20s, and I had a friend come with me and work with me. She was like, you know, she does like public policy for cities now, okay? She's uh-huh. like, you know, an urban planner, she's like helping cities become more generative. Totally a departure, but I was like, yeah. come do the admin work at this club with me. And we just had the best time, it was the best time. It's a lot of reason why we both stayed as long as we did. And then when she, you know, left, she found a job she didn't like that much. And she, I was like, well, what's the priority for the next job you have? She's like, I just really wanna like who I work with. Right. And I was like, that's such a undervalued element. When we think about career, we're thinking about the job, or we're trying to check this sure. box, or we're trying to get to this place. And it's not joyful if you're not working with, like the worst things can be joyful, like if you're working with the right people.
0: Absolutely. The worst I jobs, mean, yeah. Every single job I have undertaken since, incontrovertibly to the detriment of my, quote, career, A word I think is very dangerous in this landscape. But everything has been motivated by are these people in my tribe? Is this something that I want to learn about and be proximate to? And will it just be gratifying at a sort of soul level? Mm. You know, it's not, yeah, you can go and you know, one job that I did take that was on the surface very aligned, but also had the kind of glittery appeal of it was, you know, and self-made billionaire wanting to change the world, la, 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 la. And in many ways he is, but in many ways he's doing it in a way that I was like, I cannot stand behind this. Right. And again, to what I said, you know it instantly. I walked in to the office on the very first day and realized A, I've never been here before. All of the meetings happened elsewhere and B, this is not right, mm. um, but I took I took from it what I thought was there, and again, I it's not in a greedy way, but it was like like what's the lesson to learn here, and then how quickly can we clear the waters again? Because for this individual, this was a very big hire. He was wanting to make a big deal out of it, da da da, da. and so you know, I, in the six months I was there, created my own, brought my own culture, brought my own sort of tribal vibe to it, and created a little bit of a lift in the place. And then I left because, and left feeling very heavy about, mm-hmm. you know, quote, those left behind. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're, they're free agents and they can go off and do what they're gonna do. Um, but every decision has been made I want to be proximate to you, and never has it been built from a, you know, every single job that I was, quote, recruited for, I ended up turning down, Mm. Um, because it was, yeah, there's something to be said in the person or the enterprise or the experience that finds you, but there's also something to be said about, like, just being very deliberate about you going, just being open, if not looking for specific things.
1: I mean, I not, I'm, I'm a non-linear person, and so my resume doesn't look linear. So I've never, right. like, recruiting was never even on the table because it's like someone looks like they right. don't know what to do with me. I'm not, I don't fit the keywords, I don't fit the formula. Exactly. And so I think that's important is that it's, it's equal. Like, there are things that come into you, and that's great, but it's also, I think, when you're used to sort of pursuing your own next step, there's also a different relationship because you're not afraid to go. Like, ever, like I remember I got to college, and the first thing I did, I was like, I need to work at nylon magazine and i just like found my way to their office in soho and i went up to i don't even know how i got up the stairs got to the front desk did the whole thing and got you know the internship but the whole thing was i was so like focused on where i was going to work and what i wanted to do that i learned a lot basically learning that i didn't like half the things that i thought i wanted to do totally but i was able to like not have to like question whether or not the the dream job is the dream job. Like I have deep clarity that none of those things were my dream job because I just went for it versus waiting to see like what came to me. Well, I
0: mean, the the myth of the dream job, it's like, don't you have to have the dream become a reality in order to know if it's still a dream? I mean, it's sort of I mean, these Mm. are nice, nice to haves. Right. Like, I think it's I
1: repeat that it's a dream.
0: The dream has has to to become a reality. reality in order for it to to validate yep. as a dream, wow, you know, yeah, um, and so the the thing that you do is like align to those values, find those tribes, and and seek out and just take huge like messy bites out of the experiences that either you find for yourself like nylon, or that somehow cross your path and know, somewhat. Coolly, not in the like cool hip way, but in like just a little bit of reserve. Like that, this might not be forever. This might be a short stint. Don't overinvest in the thing before it's like, oh my gosh, I swiped and now we're getting married. It's like
1: hold your horses, right? No, temporary is okay, and that's what people. When people are especially graduating college, they're like, what do I? I'm like, your first job is not your job. Right. Some people they're lucky, sure. But most people as we go through these seasons, we evolve, we change, our purpose changes, our values change, our like the things that light us up change, and that's fine. I'm like I just think it's like, like respecting and honoring your seasons and what feels good to you is like the 100%. point.
0: And I think and light is a really good frame for it. It's like, do you feel light? Mm. Does it feel like light is shining on you in this? And do you feel like you're you're giving it mm-hmm. at the same time? You know, The most resonant job I had was with a company I didn't know existed. I had my first interview with one of the founders and we got completely shit-faced drunk (laughs) at lunch. I was offered a job the next day that I accepted and stayed there for 13 years. And for easily 18 months, I was like, So what exactly do we do here? I know it's design related and we make like museums and stuff, but like, what do we do? And I being a dum-dum, because I felt so these are my people that I was like, Oh, but they just landed a museum job in Mexico city and they need somebody who speaks Spanish slash knows the kind of social scene down there. But I felt a hundred percent myself in this environment they felt 100% confident of like, yeah, there's like some edges that he's got and some limitations of experience in terms of what we're doing here. But everybody just felt like, yeah, this is right. And let's just keep going with it. And they were, this this underlying tribe was theater. They were all from the theater. And that was one of the great, that's where my love of theater like exploded. Mm. Because I always loved seeing things happen live on stage, and this is only happening once, and it will never happen away, and this exact, it will never happen again. Yep. They might say the same lines, but that person's going to cough, and they're going to be like off their mark by a foot, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. But the thing I came to realize is that like everything that surrounds that stage, and all of the people that are on in that theater are bringing years of similar experience very, they are walking very well-trod paths. Like a stage manager knows what she's doing and the key grip or the grips know what they are doing and the people who are flying in the like flats and what know what they're doing and that this community can come together and like within 60% 60 of the job know how it's all gonna go. And the 40% is like what the material is and how it comes together. And film is very similar too. I feel that film has, film by its very nature gets a little bit more ego-y. Yes. And it's important to say that this theater tribe that I joined in the form of this design firm, they were all British. So the tradition of British theater is a very, very different one yes. in terms of where egos calibrate. But again, I'll say the word, and this will be the probably drinking game that we can now launch, which is a, the tribe who who is my tribe and am I with my tribe in this job or in this life or on this stage or whatever? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, tribe speaks to values and you know, fundamentally they have your back.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Corporations,
1: not so much, Well, that was the hard lesson was that they shut down my department and let go of my boss who'd been there. for her first job since college. She was like in her mid thirties, almost 40. And I was like, Oh, you're just disposable to them. And I was like, she gave her whole life to you. Whereas, right. like, I never intended that to be my only job, or like, you know, I wasn't gonna be there forever. I knew that it was, right. it was. I could tell, values-wise, it did not align with me. But it was crazy to be like, oh wow, like giving that many years to a company means nothing. And it was yeah. a liberating thought to then realize, okay, well then I don't have to pledge allegiance to anything. For like, it's different, I think, if you have stock options or other things that come into play. But truly, I was like, there's really no point because I'm, you're treated as disposable.
0: Right. And the stock option thing, I think, is a tricky, tricky little. Well, because it's wicked. a lottery. It's like it's a lottery. it's a lottery. It's like yes, it's part of your compensation, and you should be, you know, compensated for your work and participate in the success of the thing. But if like if that's your driving, it's factor, no problem, go for that. But then, then I would really like go for broke and. No, it's
1: know. golden handcuffs. I mean, yeah. anyone I know who's like enduring for options to vest that are unhappy, I always say, like, at what cost? Because there's no guarantee that the options are worth anything, especially if you're at a startup. If you're at a bigger stage company, like, sure, they might be worth something, but is your happiness worth less?
0: Well, it's back to how expensive is this money?
1: Yeah, so I wanna talk, sort of like, where did fundraising come into your career?
0: It came into my life because both my parents were active fundraisers Mm. growing up, both very, philanthropically minded as people who gave money and more importantly gave time, but also they valued the the principle of giving very much. And they both fundraised for a big hospital in Mexico City and they were enormously involved, some might even say a little cultishly involved with it. But it was there that I always appreciated what it was to like give time and none of this sort of like woo woo like you know I'm so saintly but it's like there is so much satisfaction that comes in giving time and that is the most valuable acid period the end nobody gets more nobody can manufacture more time so that you give it it's important I started to see a little bit of it in when doing two independent films and the exercise of Sort of convincing people because fundraising for independent film is folly. It is at the end of the day. I was like, Do you want to pay an enormous amount of money for possibly being on a shitty red carpet in like? Some
1: that's that's what you're paying for. Dumpy
0: yeah. theater in the middle of nowhere, and one film didn't see the light of day. The other one did see the light of day and became a little a big cult classic, kissing Jessica Stein, but that that I learned what the scrappy, like, almost forcing, like, yes. forcing people to give money. And then I f- volunteered and fundraised for museums because I have always been a big believer in, uh, broadly, the arts and the importance of museums and getting people integrated into a museum community early because mm. I think it, It gives you access to what's going on culturally and you know whether you want to collect art or know artists or just peel away the like pretense of art um, that's one way of doing it but the big the big fundraising moment was when I started working with uh, Yo-Yo Ma and Silk Road and at the time I took over the organization they were not in the best of financial straits notwithstanding they had a global superstar attached to it. But that was actually something that I found interesting about it because it's very easy to fundraise off the back of a celebrity because the red carpet version of funding an independent movie becomes like being next to right. a celebrity. And one cannot underestimate the power of star out there. So no slagging off people who love their celebrities, but it's like, there were so many cases where I was like, okay, let's be clear. Like, you're just, you're buying the... Access, yeah. The access. But where it became very interesting was just simply saying, like, I don't want to go after the expensive money if...
1: I mean, let's make the distinction for people into terms of, like, what, just so everyone's very clear, sure. what equates to expensive money and why expensive money is not worth it.
0: Expensive money is money that you have to spend an inordinate Amount of time to understand the reason behind the transaction and I'll give you an example like just in the in the generic yeah I think what you're doing over there is really interesting I would like to support that great what 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 resonates like where could we direct your funds like what initiative would you like to support well, I think I need to understand like how you're gonna deploy the money and where and what the benchmarks are and all, you know, All of, suddenly the hurdles start to yep. come up. Footnote, it's a financial transaction and the person giving the money has every right to understand what you're gonna do with it. This isn't just like sure. you know, throwing money around. However, if you truly believe in the organization and its mission, This could be corporate or otherwise. And the leadership of that organization tick, tick, sign the check, be gone. I also want to clarify
1: it's also a tax write off. 1,000. So I just want to clarify that too, because it changes. The difference is it's like when you're investing in a company, for profit company, yes, it can be a tax write off if you lose the money, but it also, you want to understand the projection of a company to revenue, which also in the dance of expensive money becomes okay, send me your financial projections, great, go through them. I still have more questions. Oh, I still have more questions. And then eight months later, the deal dies because there's never been an actual, it's just been wasting your time. There's no, yeah. and then you don't, you know, I, I found that dance to be incredibly challenging because I'm also like not a force person. No. I'm not gonna force you no. to write the check. No. I have no interest. That's just not how I operate. If it's mutually beneficial, would love to have you. But that that's sort of where you realize that, that the people that are closing a lot of checks are coming from a more forceful mentality.
0: Forceful mentality and or like, are we really and truly aligned in mm. your belief of this mission? In the not-for-profit worlds, it's all mission-based. Yeah. Yes, there is some glitter that comes with whether you're supporting Yo-Yo Ma or the, the Gates Foundation or you know a, a university or an arts program, but that really should be it because by the way, your foundation is required by law to give 5% of its holdings away every year, which unto itself is a big problem for me. 5% is nowhere near enough, it should go up to 10 and 15, or or it should be adjustable depending on sort of the market conditions. But let's be clear, this is a mutual situation. And that was something that I learned very early on was like, A, please don't treat me like a not-for-profit who's got his little hands out, please sir, may I have some more? because I've got a really great mission backed by a really interesting right. humanitarian with this incredible array of musicians doing really interesting work. So if you want to invest in that, great. If you want to donate to it, I'm less interested. Mm. Because the donation feels just a little like... Right. It just feels too too loose. now. Lest that sound contradictory to what I was saying, like if you believe in the mission and the leadership, one check, but I want you to believe in it because you're investing in it. You are moving it forward. You're not sustaining it, you are moving it forward. Mm. So to, to disengage people with, like what truly under the umbrella of this mesh, mission, these people, this, the work that we've done before, do you want to move forward and why? because if the whys are misaligned, that's where the values start to get staticky and whatnot. And it might be controversial, it might be considered like, oh, that's so throwaway and it's so easy. Like if somebody came with a $50 million check that had a you know 100 million questions, would he turn it down? It really depends, because $50 yeah. million dollars can become super burdensome.
1: Well, it's also beyond if the, I also think how you start things is how you end things. So yes. if the process of, the relationship is one that is exhausting and energy depleting for you, then that's gonna to continue to be the case because when they become also your investor, you're managing your investors. And 100%. so that relationship might be a big check size but then over amortized over how many years, what does that energetically cost you?
0: Yeah, amortized over the 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 energetic projections. Yes. That's, and that was one of the big sort of Calibrations for me, which was just like the energy and the work that this is taking, is taking away from the mission. Yes. Is taking away from the work. Yes. And again, it's easy to laud um, Mackenzie Scott, formerly Bezos, but how she gave her money away, and caveat, she couldn't give it away fast enough. Mm-hmm. But the way she gave it away is she did all the work. She researched all of the charities. She had very simple criteria. The leadership of the organization has to be from the community that it's serving. So example, if I'm giving money to a gay organization, that leadership had better be gay. And if it's a historically black uh, university, then the leadership had, had better be black, et cetera, et cetera. She did the research. She assigned the monies. She called up and said, how would you like your $40 million? Would you like it in one lump sum or over the course of four years? Yep. Bob's your uncle. That's, that is impact giving right there. Mm. And that is material, materially different, not only because of the amount of money that she was giving to these organizations, but because of the belief that she expressed implicitly and explicitly by how she gave the money mm. away.
1: I think you've hit on something interesting for me, which is whether it's a startup or a nonprofit, you're already overtaxed in your time and energy. Yes. And there is a cycle when fundraising that I believe puts you into scarcity. And so having someone that honors your time and energy as an investor is also a really interesting thing to bring up to any investors listening. But I also want to acknowledge that in the process of you raising money, you what I, what I gleaned from you the first time I met you was I just so appreciated your ability of knowing what you offered in a way that I think it's really hard to stay, keep your power when you become more desperate.
0: Yes. Desperation is the most poisonous poison out there because you then start wavering on your mission. You start wavering on the values. You start contorting yourself to whatever this lovely, generous individual sitting across from you is asking of you from a very personal agenda. like, And that's where I think we have so much room to delve into when entering into a financial transaction, which is like, yes, there's the numbers and the spreadsheets and the mission and the projections and all that sort of stuff, but it was like, what, why are you giving me this money? Why? Set aside all the all the math. Why are you giving me this money? Well, because I'm looking for a leader of this profile in my portfolio, or I have always—I don't know—I've just been curious about music. Yeah. You know, just there's a there's a, just in the tone of where the answer comes from, gives you a real sense of, as you say, where it starts is where it ends, but we think of where the relationship starts i want to back up and say where does this where do uh, each of us as individuals start before we even come into mm. this and how again values and tribe and all that sort of stuff but like how do i fit into your portfolio of giving how do i fit in into your philosophy of giving and at the end how have we both all three you me and the thing improved because if let's let's that's time that i'd much rather spend and give than oh god i've got to pull up another 990 and this and send them uh, like the you know our theory of change document i don't fucking know what the theory of change is going to be in a year's time when i finally get the money from you right how about generally if this feels right and the contours are great And if you've got the specificity right down to, I need you to fund an educational program in Boston city schools that each is gonna cost X, that's cool too. But let's let's stay back up here for a
1: minute. Right. I think there's a precision and clarity you bring to the fundraising conversation that I haven't really heard Mm -hmm. when people are, from my startup world perspective, and I think it's really interesting because I wasn't having those conversations I was having you know whatever like the sort of classic fundraising startup conversation. but I, I just remember I always knew like and I, for, for better or for worse, as desperate as I got, I was not someone that's gonna waver from my mission or my ethics and so that landed us with right. <laughs> less money <laughs> but
0: and a lot of learning
1: a lot of learning but like I always say like at the end of the day everyone on my cap table was of, of the values and so that when we were faced with the tough, call to like dislo- like make the company obsolete, everyone was on my side in a way that was pretty special and profound. And I remember this one investor I met, he wanted to invest and I was sitting with my business partner. And I was just like, I don't know. Like energetically, I don't know. And we were in this meeting and he was on his phone and my business partner at the time was like, I'll wait till you're off your phone. Right. You know, and, and the guy was sort of like we're like, we're having a meeting with and you can't even be present in this initial pitch meeting. Like it's rude. But again, we need the money, he wanted to invest. And so I remember I called. I looked at his portfolio companies, and I called a friend of mine who was his investor, and I was like, "What do you think of this guy? Like, do you think we should do it?" And she was like, "Yes, he's like the best investor. I love him." Da da da. da. And I was like, "Okay, okay, good to know. Um, thank you, I appreciate it." And I still had my intuition. And then I remember six weeks later she called me and she says, "I take back everything that I said." And I was like, "You always know. Like, I just right. knew I saw something she couldn't see." But I was just like, no. So we ended up walking, you know, walking away from the deal. Um, but that was sort of my issue is that I was always like, I can tell this is going to be expensive.
0: Right. right, right, right. Later. How did it feel for you to walk from the deal?
1: I mean, I did it more than once. Okay. <laughs> um, I did it more than once. I also had like probably close to ten term sheets offered and never sent. Right. So I went through like the ringer um, in a lot of different ways where you're like, you said you're investing in this meeting, and then you like, I send the term sheet, and then you disappear. And then you're like, well, why would you say that in the meeting? Because I'm also someone like I'm pretty transparent and honest. If I don't know, I'd say you need to do more diligence. I'll let you right. know. I would never say I'm investing. Send me the term sheets and then just ghost somebody. So it taught me a lot also about people, which is like who are the people that back up what yeah. they say. Like that's a big value to me. But I think I, I think entering these conversations, if I had had a little bit more less pitching, more well, what, Why are you curious about our company? What? Like, I think that would have been a more valuable approach that I just didn't have the wherewithal to understand, right. which is why when I met you, I was like, I wish you're like a fundraising masterclass. I wish <laughs> I had met you when I started because there's just so much, there's a different way to build relationships when you're having financial transactions that I always was like, I'm not a transactional person. I don't, I feel uncomfortable. Right. I'm not gonna like, that's not really what this is about. Like if we believe this together, then we'll go here together. Right. But I think I could have gotten there maybe quicker through some of these more pointed questions that I hear you articulating now.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are some mechanics in the process of raising money, whether it's for investment or for contribution, that you've you've got 30, I've got Bob, you've got 30 minutes, you know, and you've got to move through these things. But there's something to be said about almost tweaking that format of asking for money or pitching a business that just sort of pulls the rug out not from under but just moves it to a whole different mm. place. I remember when I was pitching creative work and the firm that I used to work for was 40 years old and it was not one of the big part of the big conglomerates so it was always a little bit under the radar and our brochure was a book about this big cuz the owner of the company had a ego this big so every single thing he'd ever thought of was in this book so it was very impressive to put it down. And we would pitch whatever we'd been asked to pitch. And I would always close the meeting in the same way. I would always ask, at two in the morning, at some point in this project, the shit is gonna hit the fan. And you're gonna be freaking out because you think the thing that we're supposed to deliver in the morning isn't gonna happen. And we're gonna be freaking out because you're freaking out. But we all know, because of years of the theater and all of this stuff, that it's gonna be fine but who do you want to be with in that moment where we are at our most exposed and most vulnerable? And that was, always, that I took that energy a little bit into fundraising, which is again, as said, why do you want to give money to this? Because you're not giving money to Yo-Yo and you're not giving money to me per se, you're giving money to the this. Right. So if you know what the this is and you want to give money to it, then let's keep going. But Otherwise, you don't want to have me flip through the, and then we did this, and this will be the Tam, and the Sam, and the Blam, and the Bam, and all the jargonica that goes into business. The marketing
1: buzzwords, yeah.
0: Well, it just, I mean, listen, language creates culture, but sometimes language gets in the way of culture when it was just like, Sam, Tam, Blam, Ba-bam, thank you, ma'am. Like, yeah. Uh, are we in this together? And are... Are our whys aligned? Because if they are, then let's keep it going. And the minute they aren't, let's explore why. And if we can get back to it, great. And if not, Mm. game over, hug it out, see you down the proverbial road for a drink and say, remember when? And thank God we took that exit ramp. Mm.
1: (laughs) So many good things, so many good gems. I'm just like, you. Know, every time I talk to you, I feel like my, my brain is just spinning, wheeling, turning. But I wanna ask one more question before we get into a rapid fire. Yes. So you've also helped a lot of companies IPO. Yes. And I wanted to know from going from the fundraising world to that route, A, what propelled that decision? And then what was your main takeaway from that experience?
0: Well, the propulsion was simply the, the company, the design firm that I used to work for named Imagination. Um, essentially started IPO Roadshow Communications, and uh, they, imagination would bring me back to work on these things, partially because I know what's involved and largely because I feel comfortable with the very vulnerable ego of the person about to become very rich. And that's a tricky moment to be around. Funny little story. I was I was directing one of these IPO roadshow videos, which are highly highly regulated. The SEC is like, you know, picks at every dot on the i and cross on the t, and this one founder was very tricky and very impossible to get on camera. And we easily had an eight hour day over a number of days to get all the content that we needed with him. And he rocks up with all the braggadocio of like, you know, the kingpin. And said, I have 30 minutes for you guys. And I just on the spot said, so 30 minutes, if I had eight hours, I think your valuation would probably be around, I don't know, 20 to 24 billion, 30 minutes you adjust. It's like, we're not breaking a billion, Scott. So what do you want to do? Oh my God. And let me tell you, throwing billions around really is a great motivator for people to show up on screen. But I think the thing I learned the most is just how emotional money is. Mm. And how so much static comes from an emotional place of will I ha- will I get it, will I make it? Mm. IPOs is like how big will I make it, how oh, yeah. prominent will I seem and also how, how much does this say about me and how much, particularly in the, in the kind of uh, philanthropic world, like how, what sort of largesse do I get to sort of veil myself in by having given this money. There is no donor I value more than the one who gives a lot of money anonymously because they have taken themselves out of the equation. It might be a false equivalency, but the person who's, you know, the leader who's taking a company public and IPOing, it's the exact opposite. They don't get to be anonymous. They don't, they get measured every single solitary day. And their worth is in dollars and cents and ups and downs in the market, and that's like, that's, a, that's I can only imagine, is a very particular challenge mm. to to have this universally understood metric of money, lot a little, up, down, more or less, levels against you, to whatever extent you let it be part of your everyday, mm. but it's still part of your everyday. Like, where's right. the market? How much am I worth?
1: No, I have a friend, her husband has built a big company. It was worth like, whatever, 200 million, whatever. And IPO'd and when i saw him he was like you know self funded the company grew it to a massive size and he was like you know it's down 60% from what it was originally valued at and i was like yeah yeah but it'll come back like it's like today like i'm i'm a very like long term right. thinker i'm not focusing on today the numbers here it's like it'll change he's like i hope so but i could see that for the first time of someone especially because he's self made it wasn't like he took a bunch of investors money it was a direct expression of his worth yeah It was very interesting and hearing you articulate in that way I'm like that makes a lot of sense a very fragile dance you're holding space for
0: and it's it's listen the valuation of your company is an important metric of progress and I very deliberately don't go success or achievement because it's that's very that's very movable but you got it to that level I always want to say how are you How have your values reinforced or expanded or evolved? How has your mission continued to, you know, reach out into the world? And how good do you feel about every day waking up to that metric versus this one over here that's just going like this? Up and down, yeah. Up and down. And at the end of the day, I think there's something, again, maybe a place where they connect is like, how much is enough? And everything else that's out there that could be billions or no billions, how much is enough?
1: How much is enough is the question most people should be asking themselves.
0: 100%, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. rapid fire.
0: Rapid fire.
1: Five questions, whatever your heart tells you. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Come out. Yes! That is a brand new one I've never heard. Oh, my goodness. Yes, 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 yes. Everyone, yes. Okay. what is the last book you read?
0: Trust by Hernan Diaz, a masterpiece.
1: Oh my God, I'll buy it tonight.
0: Run, don't walk.
1: All of y'all listening. You too. (laughs) I will definitely. Okay. Trust. I read everything. So I'm on the list now. What is bringing you joy right now?
0: Connecting with artists. It's been a long time since I've been like exploring the art world and just just seeing, seeing people like stare at blank and say this mm. and wrestling with it and loving it and then releasing it is such a, such a sucker and a like directive for me. I
1: love that. What are you struggling with right now?
0: Uh, purpose. Mm. Yeah you know at a crossroads of where I am in life and place geographically and the aggregate of my various things to say do all of these things add up to something Mm -hmm. or are they more of a block of clay that I need to sort of have have the the masterpiece emerge from again
1: I wish we had more time to delve into that answer, but for next time.
0: Yes, next time, promise.
1: Uh, (laughs) so much. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received?
0: Oh, golly. That, my, my golly is that there's usually two or three things come up, but it's always question what you stand for, because in the questioning comes the strength never rest on those laurels because it's like is it is it still is it still mm. yet is it still now because the more you just and and also the more you question is like if there are blurry edges to it you can say oh that needs to come back into focus or maybe i'm moving from it but to question is to derive strength mm.
1: so many awesome takeaways from this episode it's truly one that i've had to listen to a couple times to just Soak in the wisdom. Starting with, there are moments where business and cool can coexist, but they are short windows. There is no bigger boulder to push up a hill than misalignment. Misalignment of values, misalignment of understanding. This one, I cannot stress enough you will save yourself so much time by not ignoring the misalignment. Find people you like to work with. They make the experience. When fundraising, expensive money is not worth it. And we define expensive as an exhaustion of your time, energy, or resources. So take that in consideration. How we start things is how we finish things. So if the process is arduous, it will continue to be arduous through the relationship. The valuation of your company is an important measure of progress, not success. I love this distinction because it is a measure of our progress, but our evaluation does not determine how successful we are as human beings. Money can be emotional. I think that's a really important thing to think about when you're dealing with financial transactions. There was so much here to dive into from Eduardo. I hope these resonate with you. They certainly resonated with me and gave me a lot to think about. This was too quick, apparently, (laughs) way too quick, (laughs) way too quick, but so joyful. Thank you. You You're like a mastery of words and framing. And I'm just like, I can't wait to listen back to this because I'm going to be like, there's still so many things that you like lit me up on.
0: Well, we are here to, to light
1: (laughs) it lit. We are here to lit.
0: We lit the lit, yo. (laughs)
1: Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. If you could take some time to subscribe, not only to our audio channel, which you can find anywhere that podcasts can be found, but also our YouTube with all of our video episodes. If you could subscribe, rate, and review, it would make such a huge difference to us. I want to give a big, big thank you to Parentheses Produced, Wine Designs Media, Young Spielberg, and Young Scorp Consulting. This really couldn't happen without any of them. This really is the little pod that could. Thank you guys so much, and see you next week.